You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, everybody. I am back with a good friend, fellow female urologist, Dr. Rena Malik. She is a urologist and pelvic surgeon, associate professor of surgery at the Division of Urology, and director of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh my God. Thanks so much for having me. It's embarrassing. Like I've had this podcast for three years and I think this is our first time podcasting. Yes, that's okay. It's better late than never. <laughs> I know, dude, you are busy. You, the, your bio says you've published more than 50 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. That is a fact. I think I'm up to 66. 66. That's incredible. And we haven't even mentioned why you're actually famous is because you have a massive YouTube channel. Yes, that is exactly accurate. I do have a wonderful following on YouTube. And if you're all listening from YouTube, thanks so much for listening. And make sure you rate and review Dr. Casperson's podcast before the end of this because she's awesome. Ah, look at you. You know all the YouTube skills. How long did it take you to get a million followers on YouTube? And was like consistency just the key? Or were you like, I'm onto something? Like, how did it happen? It's no accident to get like, and now it's 1.41 million. I just looked last night. Like, that's not an accident. People are hungry for your knowledge. So I started in 2018 in the summer and I think it took like two years to get to a million on the exact date, but it was a little over two years and Yes, it was consistency. Absolutely. You have to show up consistently, as you know, you know, every week with new content. But I also really listened to my audience. Like, what do they want to know? And that's when I really realized I was onto something. Like, there is a desperate need for sexual health education in this country and around the world. And I had no idea how little people knew and how much they just needed to know that they were normal. And that is so empowering for people. Totally. You're... Top, so what we're going to do today is we're going to go through like your top viewed clips. Clips, videos, what's, what does YouTube call these things? Videos, content? Videos, um, yeah. Videos, videos, very good. And, but, and the theme tends to be male penis and like ejaculatory function. Did you start out that way or did you like morph into it? No, so I started out by creating like bladder health content. And when I was creating this content, like people kept asking me questions about sexual health, particularly men's sexual health. And so then I started to pivot and make that content and realize like people really like this and they really want to learn more. And so I gave them what they wanted and also educated them. And it was great. And I just like kept going with that. And so it's become a very, I have a very large male audience. I still have a large female audience, but proportionally, there are more men. That's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of like my story with like the podcast and, and menopause, right? Of like, I did not start out to like have half of a menopause podcast, but like they're hungry for the information. So that's cool that you pivoted. You're not like, I am just going to talk about overactive bladder. <laughs> Plus it gets boring, right? Like the fact that you get to keep, did you know, I'm assuming, because this is how mine is, but like you have to keep learning to be able to like answer this stuff. And that's the fun part. Like, that's the best part about it. Like, I'm literally constantly reading and learning and it is so fun. And it's like engaging for me and engaging for my audience. It's awesome. Yeah, it's so fun. Okay, clocking in at the number one most viewed video at 11 million views. How long does sex last on average? So that was actually my number two video. But <laughs> What? <laughs> I, I just went on last night. What's your number one video? 
It is scientific evidence on how to increase penile length and has, I think, 26 million views. Wow. Okay, let's go to how long does sex last and then we're going to go to penis length. I clearly don't know how to search on YouTube. That's (laughs) That's okay. So how long should sex last? Basically, there are surveys out there that people ask, you know, how long should sex last? Like, how long do you want it to last? And women generally want it to last like 25 minutes and men generally around 15 minutes. When you look at data, right, like studies and how they actually studied these people where they measured the intra-ejaculatory latency time. So the time from their partner would click like a stopwatch when they penetrated and then when they finished, meaning they climaxed. And so this is not obviously sex as a whole because foreplay is part of sex. Sex can be oral sex, other types of sex. You guys who are listening know this because Dr. Kasperson has shared all of this with you in in abundant detail. But basically what they found was that the average intra-ejaculatory latency time is about 5.7 minutes. And so it's much less than what people think. And it can range anywhere from like, 0.1 minutes to almost an hour. And it just depends person to person. But, you know, if you're getting five or six minutes, that's average and that's normal. Because most of these people, most of these questions are are really like, am I normal sort of questions. And so like helping people feel normal is awesome. I now I see it. 27 million views. It was just like in your bio, I had it hidden. Scientifically proven ways to increase penile length. Lose weight? Well, so lose weight is one. And the reason is because if you have a fat pad covering the penis, the penis extends deep inside of us, just like the clitoris, right? It extends deep into the pelvis. And so as you gain weight, you can kind of shield or cover that phallic length. But there are actually non-surgical and surgical treatments that have been studied in the literature for increasing penile length. And, you know, you can certainly like check out the video to learn very much many details about all the different kinds, but really the one that works, I think the most one is, you know, some people actually have small penis anxiety, which is a true diagnosis, like a true psychological diagnosis. And I think, again, talking about what normal is, the normal length, the average penile length is 5.2 inches. Erect or not, erect or not erect. So in research, we study it as stretched penile length. It's like a marker. It's a mark because we don't want erect penises in our offices all the time. Okay, so stretch penile length is is like a hack for your erect length. Exactly. So 5.2 inches. And so a lot of people, despite having normal size, will actually have kind of a form of body dysmorphic disorder and they actually feel like they have a small penis. And, you know, it's probably because of pornography and the the prevalence of pornography and people feeling, you know, like, wow, that's really abnormal. But those people are way on the bell curve, right? They're like really abnormally long and that's not traditionally normal. So people tend to, some people do get this problem. So psychological counseling and therapy can be very, very helpful. And there's like a number of different options they have available. But like, if you're really, you know, there are, there are a number of things that have been tried, like fillers and vacuum pumps and traction devices. And of all those for non-surgical options, the traction devices, if you use them for extended periods of time, and the ones that have been studied were used for like four or five hours a day, you know, then you'll get maybe two centimeters of length after a long period of time. You're basically stretching like the, the ligaments it's like, it's like very old school kind of contraption. You put like a ring at the base of the penis and then there's like a, it's like got two rods and then it's got, you know what I mean? Like it grabs the glands and it pulls like with a little bit of tension. And so you're just kind of really stretching tissue, just like an expander almost. 
And, uh, and so that works and there's surgical options, but there's nothing that's like a home run. There's risks and there's complications potentially with any of those surgical options. And nothing has been like, this is the best thing ever. And people who, who are having dysmorphia should, should have this surgery. And the American Urologic Association does not advocate doing any cosmetic or procedure, surgical procedures for length or girth. Yes, exactly. That hasn't changed. That has not changed. You, I, like you just hear horror stories of like infections and scarring and like buyer beware, this stuff can mess you up. It's really tragic when you see those patients who've tried something and they come out with like a disfigured penis, right? So like, it's really important to one, know the risks and benefits of whatever you're doing if you feel like you need to do that. But largely, most people do not need to do that because they're all within the normal range of average and longer or slightly smaller. I see. You know, it's so interesting, I think, that you probably see this in your followers, but like men are obsessed with penis size and girth and women don't usually care. Oh, so there was actually a study where they asked men, like how many of you are happy with your size? And the percentage was like 55%. But when they asked their partners, it was like 89%. So the large majority of women don't care. And honestly, I think the women that do care are really because of society, because we talk about, oh, how big is his dick or whatever. And none of that matters, right? Because that's not how the majority of women derive pleasure, right? People, listeners of this podcast know the clitoris is the homologue to the penis and the way that the majority of women derive pleasure and orgasm. So it doesn't matter how long the penis is. You need to put that in a book. So <laughs> right. page one, take a big sigh of relief. It doesn't matter. What I see is so many women coming in because of pain, because their partner is like too well endowed. And it's like, there's a size mismatch and discrepancy and bigger is not always better. Oftentimes you can cause, cause people pain. Well, and they're they're not giving them enough time, right? Like arousal takes time. Your body takes time to be ready to accept the penis. I'm sure you see this all the time, but like, they're like, yeah, it hurts because they're, they're basically like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And they don't have time to get aroused or lubricated or all of the above. Totally. That is some adult, like that's sex ed that nobody ever got of like, Women need blood flow and arousal just like the penis does. And the vagina will actually lengthen and tip back to accommodate a penis size. And if you're, if you're like the researchers with the stopwatch and you're like, let's have sex, you just put something in. The brain's like, is this a, tamp- is this a tampon? Is this supposed to feel good? Like I've, got, I've been given no signs of like what's happening here and it doesn't feel good. Exactly. I love it. Penis size does not matter as much as men think it matters. What about the same sex or gay? Do you know, like, does penis size matter more there since it seems to be the women who are like, meh, on this? You know, I don't know. I don't know that there is research on that, but that's a good question. I should look into that. But, you know, I think that in the in that community, there's just more communication, right? Like they talk to each other, which is like, oh, such a novel thing, right? But they actually communicate with each other. And like, because they're communicating, they're able to talk about what pleasure, how they like to be pleasured and what they need. And so I think it's like a less of an issue, right? Because you can, and they're, they're comfortable incorporating toys and other things into their repertoire, which I think in heterosexual sex is like, we're inching there, but we're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a great book of like what straight people can learn from the gay and kink community is like communication, asking people how they like it. And then at the end, like the follow-up talk, right? Like, was that good for you? What would you have done differently? It's such a foreign concept to be like, how about talk before and after? We're like, I don't know. 
<laughs> that seems so weird. So I was listening or reading Dan Savage's book, his A to Z book, and he does talk about it a little bit. He's like, we by nature have to communicate. There are two, you know, the person in the relationship can be the giver or the receiver. And so you by nature have to talk to each other. Like you can't just assume. And so he does have some of that in his book, which is which was actually pretty good. Love it. So clocking in at 10 million views, what exactly is the G-spot? So the G-spot, you know this well, is actually an erogenous zone, right? Which is an area where the skein's gland sits in the anterior vaginal wall. And the skein's gland is the homologue of the male prostate. And some men derive pleasure from prostate play. Similarly, some women derive pleasure from being stimulated in their erogenous zone, their G spot, whatever you call it. But it's not like an actual nubbin that you're going to find and press, right? It's not a button. It's an area. And not everyone is going to climax with a G spot stimulation. And so I think, you know, this is obviously not news to you and I, but for many people, it's like mind blown, you know? And, and in that video, I talk about just basic female anatomy and and you'd be surprised, right? Of like how little people know about their bodies. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think it's because that was that's your number three most common one of like, hey, at least people are interested maybe in figuring this out. This is yeah. good. Nine point four million views. Can you masturbate too much? Yes. So the answer is probably not. Right. As long as masturbation is not causing you problems in the sense that like you are avoiding your partner, you're avoiding your life activities or your normal things that bring you joy, and you're not finding joy with anything else in your life. No, it's not going to cause you any harm. And in fact, it can have a lot of benefits. So, you know, you can't masturbate too much. It doesn't mean that you don't like your partner. It doesn't mean that you're going to have issues with your erections later or not be able to climax later. And in fact, it can have a lot of benefits, right? It can help you sleep better. It can release feel-good hormones. And so, and it can help you figure out what you like so you can share that with your partner. So masturbation's great. Awesome. And that's for any gender, anybody who masturbates, data's the same. We're not just we're not just talking about penis owners. All owners. Owners of all genitalia. All all the owners. <laughs> pelvic, the pelvic <laughs> owners. 8.9 million views. Can you increase your semen volume? Yeah. So this is interesting, right? I had no idea how much people cared about this. And that's like really, I guess, how naive I am. <laughs> but yeah, so people want to know, like, how can you increase your semen volume, right? So in order to ejaculate, it's a lot of different things that play a role. It's your genetics, it's your diet, it's your hydration level, it's how long it's been since you last ejaculated. So ways that you can increase your semen volume, the first one, which everyone should do, whether they care about their semen volume or not, is quit smoking because smoking will reduce the semen volume and will also make it taste really bad. So that's number one. No way. Yeah. <laughs> they should yeah. put that on the packaging. May make semen taste horrible. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's no good data on this, right? Like, how are you going to study like <laughs> the taste of semen, right? Like you can't do that. But like, there is some internet data that suggests that like, smoking, red beads, those sorts of things can make it taste bad. Just like asparagus makes your urine smell bad. Very similarly, it can make your body fluids smell and taste different. 
What about the things on the internet that I've seen to either increase volume of semen or change the taste to make the taste more enjoyable? Are, is there is there any science to these supplements or where where's this coming from besides people just wanting to like self-improvement? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know all the data on each of the ingredients of the supplements. So, you know, you'd have to look at those specifically, but ultimately like the flavor stuff is like, we know that certain things will increase. There is fructose in the semen, right? And certain things will increase fructose or have fructose in them, like pineapples, one that people talk about a lot or kiwi, you know, and so maybe eating those can slightly sweeten the semen, right? But it's not like you're going to eat a pineapple and then th- that night you're going to be like, oh, it tastes great. Like it's not, it's not like that. So it's like, you know, if you eat a lot of those things in your diet regularly, sure, it might be slightly sweeter, but like yeah. And so maybe those, I don't, I don't know what those supplements have in them. So maybe they do like help with that. I don't know, but really, so the, I think the next thing is just hydrate more. Don't buy the supplements, just hydrate, hydrate a ton and drink a lot of fluid. That's going to help. To increase the volume. Yeah. And then the third thing is like ejaculate less frequently. If you masturbate right before, you're going to have less volume or even the day before. Whereas if you wait two or three days, you're going to have more volume. And then, you know, the last thing is that there are these muscles around the urethra called bulbospongiosis and ischiocavernosis muscles that will contract when you have an ejaculation. And so you can strengthen those muscles by doing Kegel exercises. Although I think a lot of men have a hard time doing those exercises and don't really know how to do them. You can do them and they can help strengthen the pelvic floor, which can help you have stronger ejaculation. Is semen volume kind of like, this is me being like a naive urologist, is semen volume kind of like penis size or like it really matters to the guy because they are like defining masculinity by it and the females are like, yeah, eh, it's just kind of messy. We don't really care unless we're trying to get pregnant. (laughs) I mean, certainly I think, you know, if you hear about people watching pornography, they use like all these extra things to make it look like you're having a huge voluminous like semen volume. And I think that's where it comes from, right? You feel like that's a part of your masculinity or your uh, your fertility and a sign of that. And so people feel like, yeah, I want to have a big voluminous ejaculate or it changes, right? And as, as people age, they tend to have weaker muscles and it doesn't shoot as far. It kind of dribbles out. And so they get upset about that. And that's definitely from the male side, but from the female side, some women, I think, and like the feeling of of the ejaculate, like they know that they've pleased their partner. And so that is something that is like a cycle that they're used to feeling that and they like to feel it. And then when they don't feel it as strongly, they're like, is that a reflection on me? Yep. That makes which a lot of not, sense. Obviously, which is not, obviously. <laughs> I guess the other real quick on that is certain medications for your prostate or surgeries on your prostate will decrease your semen volume. Yes, for exactly. Yeah. Okay. 5.8 million views. Can ejaculating more frequently reduce risk for prostate cancer? They've been looking at this for like decades, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a great study. I think it's been overblown because it's like one study and, you know, it's a good study. I can't say it's a bad study, but basically what they did was they took surveys monthly for several years, like 1992 to 2010. And they looked at the frequency of ejaculation from men's in their 20s up till their 40s. So, and they divide them up into groups like 20 to 29, 30 to 39, 40 to 49, so on and so forth. And so they took these surveys over many, many years. And they also collected a bunch of data, like how much activity do they have? How much did they weigh? What did they eat? What did they drink? 
several different factors. Did they smoke? And then they looked at ejaculation frequency in relation to them getting prostate cancer. And they found that people who ejaculated more than 21 times a month were one third less likely to develop cancer than those who ejaculated four to seven times a month. However, you know, I mean, it's a good study. It's very well done. It was like 30,000 men. So it was a really good study. But ultimately, does that mean they're just having more sex and they're healthier because they're having more sex? Does that mean that? And it was also like only in a certain age group. So we don't know like if it really means anything, but certainly it should reassure you that ejaculating more frequently or having more sex is not dangerous, right? Love it. We don't want to to use it against people like, honey, I have to have the sex this much time because... I kind of decreased my prostate cancer risk. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which fair. I'm sure after this study came out, people were like, honey, I need... <laughs> right, right. Don't you want me to live forever? Um, okay. Oh, I didn't say this in the intro. I, I don't know if I told you this or not, but people need to know this. So I was like in the OR wrapping up a case or something. And this one of my local circulating nurses came over and she's like, you're famous. And like, some people know what I do in town and some people don't. Like, some people don't even know I have a podcast, like whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah? And she's like, yeah, you're on Dr. Rena Malik's YouTube. (laughs) You're like, no, but I'm famous from my podcast. (laughs) I know. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, I had to like, kind of like do a lot to even get on her YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) That was why I'm famous is because they're like, we follow her. We love all of her stuff. And then you just popped up on her YouTube one day. And I was like, yeah, well, we're, we're buds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you're like, thank you for making me famous in my hometown for one circulating nurse. Our video did not make the top 10, but it's up there. It's close. It's, yeah. it had some, you guys it's had need several. to watch it if you haven't. It's gold. It's great. It's so good. It's really good. We talked about faking orgasms. Mm-hmm. Why? We shouldn't. This is a bad thing that women do, but you know, we, you can watch it and learn more. I know. I'm actually talking about, so I mentioned fake orgasms in my TED Talk coming up. So we'll start, we'll start educating that we shouldn't do that. We're perpetuating the performance myth. Absolutely. 5.7 million views, how to increase testosterone naturally. That's a good one. It's a good one. And it goes over like literally the science behind each of these things that we recommend. But the things that we recommend are get good sleep. And like, why? Because testosterone is on a circadian rhythm, which means that it works with the sun and your body works best when you sleep, when it's dark, when you're up, when it's light. And so getting more sleep helps good, high quality sleep is super important. Number one. Number two is do high resistance exercise. So I did like a follow-up video to this where I talked about the exercise science, but basically it's like heavy resistance training to really boost testosterone, not just like exercise of any kind, but really heavy resistance training can be helpful. And eating good. Again, the food science is very all over the place. The best data we have is on the Mediterranean diet, which is high in nuts and seeds and legumes and, you know, a little bit of fish, like a little bit of meat, but mostly very, you know, great diet to have from the majority of people, but also the most, the best studied diet that we have. Not to say other diets are not good, but that's the one that we have the most data on. And then avoiding endocrine disrupting chemicals. And that can include things like BPAs, which are fine in plastic containers, plastic water bottles, and those can cause disruptions in your endocrine system, which creates testosterone. What about alcohol and marijuana? 
Yes. So avoid, that's a good one. Uh, so that's also in there, but avoiding in excess alcohol is bad. And in excess, marijuana can also impact your testosterone levels. So both of those, and smoking, 100% quit smoking. Like I can't stress it enough, quit smoking. But alcohol in excess and marijuana in excess and drugs in general in excess can cause problems with sperm production and testosterone production. So really important to avoid those. I know you talk a lot about erectile dysfunction and I'm just realizing it's not in like your top 10. People are more curious about penis length than erectile, which erectile dysfunction is incredibly common but it didn't even make your You know, I think 10. it's like the people are interested in preventing it or like trying to optimize everything they can. And there's this myth, right? That if you boost your testosterone, you're never going to have problems with erections. And that's not necessarily true, right? They're not, testosterone plays a role in erectile dysfunction, but they're not certainly like the same, right? So they're not like only one. Erectile dysfunction is extremely multifactorial, so... Perfect. I'm excited about this next one. 5.2 million views. Explaining the difference between showers and growers. Yeah. So the, <laughs> so a shower and a grower. The difference between a shower and a grower is, a, is exactly what you think it is, right? There are some people who, when they tend to get erect, they will enhance their length, expand and extend their penile length. Whereas a shower will have little change in length, but they will just be the same size that they are when they're flaccid and very similar to their erect state. And the difference between these is because of genetics and environment, right? Genetics is like, what you get from your parents and environment. Like the things that are around you can change how your penis looks. If it's cold in the room, if you're stressed out, if you're exercising, all these things can change the way your penis looks. And so like you might notice that when you're cold, it looks smaller. When you're warm, it looks longer. Like that's normal. And so, yeah, there are actually different types of people and they've actually looked at this in a study and they found that growers tended to have a change of about four centimeters in length and compared to showers who are less than four centimeters in length. I mean, it, it is what it is. There's not really anything you're going to do about it. And it doesn't mean that you're better in one way or other. It's just how you're built. Love it. At 4.3 million views, does prostate massage have any health benefits? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question because... Prostate massage, as you probably know, was like once prescribed as a treatment for prostatitis and has since gone out of favor. But, you know, the prostate has a lot of nerves that are also can be perceived as pleasurable. So some people can derive pleasure from prostate massage and that's okay as long as you do it safely. Like you use lots of lubrication, use, you know, clean gloved hands, cut your nails. Those sorts of things are all super important. But generally, speaking, it doesn't have any true health benefits that we know of outside of pleasure. Awesome. And 3.5 million views. Does science support No Nut November? And can you explain what that is for the people who might not know what No Nut November is? Absolutely. So No Nut November is essentially semen retention. So people have started popularizing this term called No Nut November, where people try not to ejaculate for the whole month of November. And this actually has routes in like Taoist literature or, you know, Taoist beliefs where like you're losing your energy through ejaculation and you're losing control. And so by having semen retention, you can gain control. 
And, and so there's been all this, like these ideas about like how ejaculation is bad for you. It reduces your testosterone, so on and so forth. And, you know, so if you, if you retain your semen, you're going to have higher rates of testosterone. Like people are actually, I saw one guy on YouTube who was actually showing his semen retention journey and he was like getting his testosterone checked every so often. And I was like, this is wild. Like, this is just wild. And so you know, they've done some studies on this and they've shown that, you know, the testosterone may rise a little bit if you delay it for like 21 days, but it's not going to last very long. And so it's not really going to give you like this long lasting boost in testosterone. So ultimately there's no health benefit to, at least scientifically, there's no health benefit to semen retention. You know, and bottom line is, so a lot of people can do this and get a lot of tension in their body, right? People get things like blue balls, which is essentially epididymal hypertension where the blood flow is flowing into that area, but it's not getting released. And so it can cause discomfort and pressure in the scrotum. And so that can happen, but also people can develop like pelvic floor dysfunction. So they can have muscles which are really tense and not relaxing because they're so wound up because they're like trying to not ejaculate. And, and so then you're just basically torturing yourself for a month for really very little benefit. But I will have the caveat if you're doing it and you're finding benefit from it and you're not tortured, then by all means, go ahead. You're not going to hurt yourself. Your body's probably going to take care of it itself. Either your body's going to absorb that semen or you're going to ejaculate it at night. So it doesn't really matter. Like if you're happy and you're doing great, that's fine. But if you're not and you're feeling tortured, you're not going to really gain anything from it. I love it. That's good advice. Do you have a favorite YouTube video that you've done? Like you're like, this is my favorite one. Oh, my favorite. You know, I have a lot of fun making them. So I don't like have a specific favorite. I think I love the ones where I get into like the history of things. And I would say I, I really enjoy like learning all this stuff and learning the quirky things that people want to ask their doctors, but could never ask or don't feel the courage to ask them. They're too embarrassed or they ask their doctors, the doctor's like, oh, I don't know, because it's just not really relevant to their day-to-day -day practice, right? Like as a urologist, we don't need to know how to increase your ejaculatory volume because it has no consequence on your health unless you're infertile, right? And so it's not necessary for the average person for us to like know that. And as we were talking about before, like there's a lot of pressures to see more patients in shorter and shorter periods of time. So you can't have that conversation with people. So I just generally love like kind of going in the weeds and finding answers and being able to give the data and, and share that with people. I love it. I think we read the same journals and there's fun, interesting stuff that comes in the journals that like the average person doesn't have access to because a lot of medical journals are kind of under subscription only. You have to know how to access them. You might have to be in an academic place in order to get them for free. And so like, I love being like, this is super interesting. People might want to know this, but they're never going to know it if it stays in a journal. And I think that's the role of your YouTube is like, people are curious about their bodies, right? And they're not going to be reading medical journals and filtering through all of that. And you do, you do all the hard work for them. Yeah, it's fun. I love it. So hopefully if you're listening, you'll uh, check out my channel and find something useful. Uh, even though my content is very male focused, I do have plenty of videos that are geared towards women. So don't feel like you're isolated and you won't find anything there for yourself. So I love it. Dr. Malik, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and going over your top hits on your 1.41 million YouTube subscribers. Go subscribe and get her to 2 million. Why not? Thanks so much. And rate and review Dr. Casperson's podcast if you haven't already. <laughs> 
Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.